This is the first episode of a three-part series detailing the actions of the intelligence services of the United States in Chile and their involvement in the coup that deposed duly elected President Salvador Allende. Americans' involvement in that event 50 years ago still acts as a festering wound, impacting U.S. relations with nations in Latin America. Historians continue to debate the event and its impact, and this podcast joins that discussion. Why is Chile important? Why do we examine Allende in the years that followed? Because until there is true transparency of U.S. involvement and an atonement for our culpability, the U.S. will remain hamstrung in any attempts to partner with Latin American nations for a mutual good, regardless of the opportunities that may present themselves. This first episode will discuss some relevant history about Allende's three prior unsuccessful runs for the presidency and the steps the Richard Nixon administration took to prevent the inauguration of Allende after his election victory in 1970. The second episode will deal with the deaths of three American citizens murdered by the military junta that rose to power after the coup and how U.S. intelligence services hid the truth of their fates from their families and the American people. Also, it will examine the brazen immorality of the Nixon administration through the story of syndicated columnist Jack Anderson. Finally, the third and concluding episode will examine the successful coup in 1973 and the ramifications that still affect U.S. relations with Latin America. In 1951, Jacobo Arbenz was sworn in as the duly elected president of Guatemala. His campaign promised land reforms, and when he took office, his administration took steps to purchase land owned by the United Fruit Company and redistribute that land back to peasant farmers to create a stronger middle class. The company owned huge tracts of land in Guatemala that was appraised at a fraction of its real value. When Arbenz confiscated some of the company's land holdings and compensated the company at its appraised value, United Fruit complained that its real value was 20 times the compensation amount. United Fruit also had large ownership stakes in Guatemalan infrastructure. To protect their financial interests, the company lobbied the U.S. government to act. Arbenz was committed to fostering democracy. Although he led a coup that deposed the military dictatorship Arbenz stepped down to allow the election of a civilian to the presidency, and later was elected as president himself. As president, he was considered a moderate in Guatemala, but the United States saw him as an instrument for a communist takeover, even though he did not promote any communists in his administration. Ultimately, to protect U.S. corporate interests and prevent any possible foothold of communism in Latin America, the CIA orchestrated a coup under the codename Operation PB Success and removed Arbenz from power. The U.S. Vice President during the operation was future President Richard Nixon. It is difficult to overstate how strongly the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union affected U.S. decision-making. Almost immediately after the end of the Second World War, the standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union began. This was solidified in 1947 when U.S. President Harry Truman issued what became known as the Truman Doctrine, which declared that it was the duty of the U.S. to support nations, quote, who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures, unquote. In other words, containing communism was now U.S. policy. In Latin America, fighting the Cold War was driving U.S. policy and the CIA was the vehicle of political upheaval against Latin American governments. 
This crusade against communism was only strengthened by the Cuban Revolution and events that followed. In 1959, after a six-year insurgency, Fidel Castro successfully drove U.S.-backed dictator Fulgencio Batista from power. Through it all, Castro and his revolutionaries had promised to bring much-needed reforms to the island nation, including agrarian and economic reforms that were unpopular with U.S. corporate entities. The relationship between the Castro government and the United States cooled. In April 1961, the CIA attempted to duplicate their previous success against Arbenz in Guatemala with disastrous results. The force of CIA-trained counter-revolutionaries were easily captured by Castro's forces. As a result, Castro announced his government fully supported communism and he allied with the Soviet Union for protection from future U.S. invasion. The Cuban Revolution and Castro's alliance with the Soviets was the prism through which the U.S. viewed all Latin American events from that point forward. Salvador Allende first ran for president in 1952. Although he was a professed socialist candidate, he received less than 6% of the vote. In 1958, however, he solidified his support from the socialists and Marxists in the country. He finished just behind conservative Jorge Alessandri and ahead of moderate Eduardo Frey. According to the Chilean constitution, if no one candidate received more than 50% of the vote, then one of the top two candidates would be chosen in a runoff election in Congress. It is important to understand that unlike the United States, where a candidate represents a single political party, Candidates in Chilean elections run representing several parties that form a coalition around a single presidential candidate. This system produced a stable democracy, one that had lasted for quite a long time. Following tradition as expected, in 1958 the Congress selected Alessandri as the president. For the second time, Allende had been shut out of the presidency, but the narrowness of Alessandri's victory most assuredly caught the attention of the United States. In 1964, the CIA heavily funded the campaign of moderate candidate Eduardo Frey. As a result, Frey won a convincing election over Allende, capturing 56% of the electorate and thus avoiding any runoff in the Chilean Congress. Three times now Allende had run, all with the same result, but things were finally going to change in his favor. Frey, a member of the Christian Democrat Party, ran as a reformist candidate in 1964 he tapped into a program created during the administration of U.S. President JFK called the Alliance for Progress. AFP was a massive aid program designed with the idea that economic investment in Latin America would help reduce poverty. The hope was that as more people escaped poverty, the less they would want to turn towards communism. Fry promised a revolution in liberty and pushed the government to the left as he introduced agrarian and economic reforms. These ideas were popular with the Chilean people, yet the pace of the reforms was such that it did not produce noticeable change. Also, an economic downturn during Fry's presidency helped create social unrest. As a result, the conditions created a strong appeal for the development reforms and capitalist modernization that Allende championed. In the 1970 election, former President Jorge Alessandri once again ran as the standard bearer for the conservatives. At the beginning of the 1970 campaign, the U.S. Embassy was confident that Alessandri would win an outright majority as Fry had done previously. It would not come to be. The late 1960s were a time of great social upheaval across the globe, 
and the Chilean economy had worsened during the previous six years. As the campaign dragged on towards Election Day, it became clear that Allende's tireless campaigning and his endless army of volunteers had made the race too close to call. In his book, Weavers of Revolution, renowned historian Peter Wynn states, quote, The elections took place in an atmosphere of heightened expectation. As results came in from the capital's poorer districts and outlying provinces, Allende moved into a narrow lead that he never lost, capturing 36.3% of the vote to Alessandre's 34.9%. Salvador Allende had become the first socialist candidate to rise to power through a democratic election. The response of the U.S. government was almost immediate. On September 15, 1970, less than two weeks after Allende's stunning victory, in a meeting that included Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, Attorney General John Mitchell, and CIA Director Richard Helms, Nixon ordered them to make sure Allende was removed by a coup that would prevent him from being sworn in or that would bring down his administration shortly afterward. After the election, the CIA, under the direction from the Nixon White House, started to plan for two roads that would lead to the result denying Allende the presidency. Dubbed Track 1 and Track 2, the first would result in the government under military rule through dubious constitutional means. The second would put the country under military rule after a violent coup. Track 1 would have outgoing President Eduardo Frey replace all his ministers with members of the military and resign, leaving the country under military rule, who would then call for a special national runoff election between Alessandre and Allende. Since this would bypass the usual vote in Congress, because Allende did not win 50% of the vote outright, it would result in an Alessandre victory. The problem with this was that it required the cooperation of Fry, and the president was committed to respecting the constitutional progress and the country's tradition of democratic elections. Track 2 had a three-step plan. Identify and work with coup-minded officers in the Chilean military, inform them the U.S. was fully supportive of a coup, and finally create a climate where the coup could be a success by using propaganda, disinformation, and terrorist activities to provide a pretext for action from the Chilean military. The day before the September White House meeting, Kissinger was given a memo by his top deputy for Latin American affairs, Viron Vicay, that summoned the CIA position on possible responses to the Allende victory. Some of the assessments included the following. First on the list was that a military coup to prevent Allende's inauguration was impossible, as the Chilean military is incapable and unwilling to seize power. We have no capability to motivate or instigate a coup. Second, that the dubious plan to use the unusual political mover, the so-called Track 1 plan, has a considerably less than even chance of success. What is more alarming were the perceived consequences of any action. The case memo states that using some untried political tactic to deny Allende the presidency would result in widespread violence and insurrection. Also, if the actions are tied to the United States, it would destroy U.S. credibility and solidify anti-U.S. sediment in Latin America permanently. In short, the memo states that exposure would be, quote, disastrous, unquote. It was evident early on that the Track 1 plan to keep Allende from getting inaugurated was a non-starter. The plan would have the outgoing president, Eduardo Fry, replace all his ministers with members of the military, then resign, leaving the country under military rule who would then call for a special national runoff election between Alessandri and Allende.
The problem with this was that it required the cooperation of Fry, and the outgoing president was committed to respecting the constitutional process and the country's tradition of democratic freedoms. In the Track 2 plan, having a military coup to prevent Allende from taking office also had a major roadblock. General René Schneider, head of the Chilean military, was deeply loyal to the Constitution and the nation's democratic tradition. Therefore, to remove him from the equation, the CIA worked with friendly military elements to abduct Schneider, fly him to Argentina, and blame his disappearance on Allende supporters. The military would then control the government to prevent Congress from voting in the special runoff election. The actual execution of the plan was a disaster. On the day the kidnappers attempted to abduct Schneider, he drew a pistol to defend himself, and as a result, he was shot several times. He was rushed to a hospital and underwent open-heart surgery, but died three days later. The day before his death, on October 25th, Congress met to vote in the runoff election between Allende and runner-up Jorge Alessandri. If the plotters assumed that the attack on General Schneider had improved the chances of a coup before the vote, they completely miscalculated the mood of the Chilean people and their pride in the country's democratic tradition. Besides, Allende was not some radical outsider. Instead, he had been a senator and part of the political establishment in Chile for his entire political career. Congress voted overwhelmingly to confirm Allende as president and show their abject repudiation for the violence. With that vote, Salvador Allende won the office he had sought for two decades and shocked the world as the first socialist to become a national leader through the democratic process. In the next episode of this series, we will examine the level of criminality of the CIA and the Nixon administration by examining their actions regarding American citizens caught up in the coup's aftermath. In the final episode, we will examine the coup that deposed Allende three years after he took office and how those events still shape the political environment today. I would like to end this episode with one final bit of irony of the events that October. Peter Kornbluth points out that the U.S. State Department, which was oblivious to the fact that the events in Chile were being put in motion by Nixon himself, recommended to Henry Kissinger that the president send a short message of condolence to outgoing Chilean President Eduardo Fry, which read, quote, The shocking attempt on the life of General Schneider is a stain on the pages of contemporary history. I would like you to know of my sorrow that this repugnant event has occurred in your country, unquote. Sadly, what would follow would be much worse. 